0: Hear the word of God from a selection of passages from Esther chapters one and two and Psalm 106. You can follow along on the screen. Esther chapter one, verses one and two. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. Esther chapter 2. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Queen Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Joachim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Esther was daughter of Abahel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. And now, Psalm 106, 40 through 48. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhor- abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: said earlier in the book of Esther we're gonna be in the book of Esther for the next few weeks and honestly I'm so pumped so pumped to be in this book it's uh, one of those books that um, is very interesting very unique in the Bible and before we get started I want to actually play a video for you guys because this video does a better job kind of giving you the background in the story of Esther than I would try to wrap it up really quickly for you guys so before we get started watch this video Right? I could not have done that, so. <laughs> if you guys don't know about it, the Bible Project has uh, stuff like that almost every book of the Bible, not almost, every book of the Bible, and it's excellent. And they also have a coffee, um, a coffee table book that uh, we have that has all those pictures of every book, so it's really cool. Great gift to give away. You heard it said in that video, and you see it in the book of Esther, that there's no mention of God. Very intentional, no reference to prayer, no reference to prophecy, no reference to anything that has anything to do with God. You'd never know there was a God or a religion or anything from this text. In fact, in a couple of the places in this book where the writer actually has to avoid mentioning God, actually has an intentional has to avoid it, where it just makes sense to mention God, he doesn't. We know this because we know this is intentional, we can't be an oversight. It's not like the writer of the book of Esther was like, oh dude, I totally forgot to put God in here. Oh, it wasn't one of those situations where, oops, it was an intentionary literary device. But what was the point? And we heard what the Bible project's point was, that it was trying to show that God is working in the midst of sinful, moral, and morally ambiguous people to work out his accomplished plans. At the time of the writing of this book, there's a whole array of powerful forces that were seeking to destroy the Jewish people, literally kill them, wipe them out, take their plunder, take their wealth. And this has happened in the past and many times in the rest of the Bible. And whenever the God of Israel sees the people of Israel in trouble, he typically, in the Bible before this, responded in a spectacular way. In a big way. Ten plagues, pillars of fire, Red Sea parting, winning battles with low numbers, blowing a horn, and walls coming down. When God comes through for them, the events in which he is intervening are typically extraordinary. But here, there is no miracle no vision, no dream, no mention of any sort about God moving in this crazy, crazy way. In fact, he seems completely absent. He's totally silent. And by, when we get to the end of the book, you're going to see that you can almost see that this, this whole string of coincidences that happened, and if they didn't happen, all the Jews would be wiped out, but in the middle of it, all these people, what they're seeing is they don't see any move of God to rescue them. But what we do see is coincidence, circumstance, situation after situation that has brought together an incredible, just as extraordinary result, but looks different. We have a term for this. What is this term? Anybody know what word? Oh, oh, somebody said it. Providential. The term is providence. We don't believe in random chance. We believe that God is in control. So what exactly, exactly is providence? The word providence is striking, it's an awesome word. It comes from the word provide, you guys know the word provide, right? Which has two parts, pro, Latin for forward or on behalf of, and vide, Latin to see. So you might think that provide would mean to see forward or to foresee, but that's not what it means. It means to supply what is needed to give sustenance or support. So the noun providence has, to come to mean, has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe. Why is this? There is a linguistic reason and a theological reason why this means this way. Linguistically, pro means on behalf of as well as for. So pro vide can mean to see on behalf of. We say in English, I'll see to that issue. I'll see to that problem. See too means to take care of, to provide for. So in other words, seeing to something with a purpose is to make provision for what you see to. So seeing to something is actually acting on behalf of something, is providing. Thus providence is the act of God's seeing to the universe. He'll see to it. But theologically, there's a reason why seeing to also means providing for. In the story of Abraham, when he sacrificed Isaac, or he was, didn't sacrifice, in the process of sacrificing Isaac, before they went up to the mountain, Isaac said to his father, "Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" Genesis twenty-two seven. Abraham answered, "God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son." And when God had shown Abraham a ram caught in the thorn, Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, Abraham called the name of that place, "The Lord will provide." Whatever it says "provide" in Genesis twenty-two, the Hebrew word is the word for "see." Very simply, Abraham said to Isaac, "God will see for Himself the lamb." And in verse 14, the Lord will see. Why does God seeing in Hebrew mean that He'll provide? The deepest answer is that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He's not a passive participant in the world right now. He's, he's not a passive participant in a world that exists without His sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. Wherever God is looking, God is moving. If God perceives, He performs. If he inspects, he affects. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. When God sees, he sees too. So his seeing is always with a view to doing. So what I want us to get to is this idea of providence is God seeing to something he's seeing to the state of the universe he's seeing to the state of the world he's controlling he is moving what providence is very simply put is God's in charge God's in control I'm gonna put this on the screen real quick I'm gonna give a little catechism on you and Nevin Zimmerman's really happy that I'm doing this for you this is from the Heidelberg Catechism question 27 and what it says what then is the providence of God this is the answer It is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds the heavens and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I'll leave that up there for a second. you guys can read it again. Providence is good or bad. Anything that happens comes from the hand of our Father. This is our belief in what providence is. But it's easy to define providence, it's one thing, but discerning and seeing providence at work is a completely different undertaking. Most of us have a hard time kind of figuring out Providence in the midst of very painful life events. The tracing out of complex web of kind of design when we look at the stuff that's happening in our lives. It's, it's hard to see with the consequences of actions and we, we scratch our heads wondering what in the world the Lord is doing. That's when it's hard to see providence, isn't it? When life is tough and circumstances are not the way you would ever make it go and you're thinking, God's not in control, are you crazy? I just lost my job, that can't be what God wants. I just lost my child or... My loved one, how could I possibly believe God's in control? There's a puritan named John Flavel says this, Providence is like a Hebrew word. It is only understood when read backwards. (laughs) I don't know if you guys do that, but you read Hebrew backwards. (laughs) Nerd joke. (laughs) But even when we read it, even when we see with hindsight, Providence is only ever understood by us partially and imperfectly. Even when we try to, it's only understood by us partially and perfectly. As I was doing um, research for this uh, this sermon, I read another sermon by another pastor, and he shared this story, which was a great example of maybe why, but still not truly understanding providence. He shared a story about a guy named Michael Riley. And when Michael Riley was young, his aunt was shot and killed by an unstable young man wielding a gun. And everyone connected to the family wondered what God was doing with such an incredible tragedy. With the life insurance money, his grandmother built Michael a basketball court, and he learned to shoot hoops, played basketball all the time. A few years later, um, when Alabama was playing Mississippi State in the SEC basketball game, um, the state was in the lead, and Alabama had the ball with a chance to tie the game. Alabama had the ball a chance to tie the game, Michael Riley was there, Took a couple dribbles, 28 foot out, this is like five feet past the three-point line, pulls up, shoots a shot, 14, 15,000 people are there on the edge of their seats, last second shot, the the ball bounces on the rim, bounces around, and it goes in. Oh, the crowd goes crazy, goes into a tie game, sends the game into overtime. Literally less than six minutes later, a a tornado came roaring past the Georgia Dome. Right past the unexpected, roaring past, and where if the game was not tied at that moment, not into overtime, where every single human being would have been outside getting to their cars, went roaring through, and but they were all safe because Mike Riley hit a game-winning shot to send the game into overtime. What was God doing that day when Mike Riley's aunt was shot and killed? Honestly, I don't know. Was it for this reason? I have no clue. But I do know this. One of the things that we can say for sure that he was beginning to shape and mold a young man directing his steps so that one day maybe he was used to throw a ball into a hoop that would save many lives. Maybe a bullet left a gunman's weapon for this reason. No one could have foreseen such a a crazy circumstance, a, a crazy outcome or something that happened, but maybe that was part of God's master plan. It's the mystery of something called God's providence. So here's the thing, we see a string of coincidences and we can choose to look at it and say, is this a plan, is there a purpose? And we can say, no, there is no plan, there's random chance, everything is chaos. Or we can look at it and choose to say, there is a plan and there is purpose. It's almost one way or the other, isn't it? Those are your choices. And we can look at the book of Esther and say, ah, coincidences. Or we can say what the author was trying to teach us, that this is intentional work of a sovereign God who's gonna rescue his people. Esther is in the right place at the right time when Vashti is deposed, and when Haman's evil plans come to light. When the king cannot sleep and asks for his historical records to be read, they happen to fall open to the place where Mordecai was highlighted. It happens that Haman is outside the door, and resulting honor to Mordecai makes Haman even angrier. The frequency of these coincidences is meant for us to to see that the providence of God is at work. Guys, here's the deal. Esther is crying out. The book of Esther cries out to Do you see God's hand at work in this coincidence? Do you see God's hand at work in your coincidences? That has brought you here this morning. Ultimate reversal happens in Esther nine one, where it says this On this day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. I want you to know that in this verse there's no subject identified as the one who turns the tables. Throughout the rest of scriptures, it's known God is identified as the one who brings reversal, who turns the tables, who turns darkness into light, mourning into rejoicing, defeat into salvation, and death into life. God is the one who provides. He even provided for our deepest need, our human condition. He gave his son as a sacrifice upon a cross. Just like with Abraham, God provided. He gave what was needed. He provided. He provided the sacrifice. Jesus came and lived a perfect life of love and law. And he died upon the cross in our place, taking on the sin of the world. God made a way through the work through the work of Jesus. This was the ultimate reversal of the curse and the ultimate turning of the tables. Do you see what, what Esther is trying to point you to? What God is intentionally doing? He's saying, hey, when God seems quiet and all you see is coincidence in your life, the author of Esther is saying, no, God is at work and can I tell you this right now people when all seems quiet in your life or maybe you don't feel God but you see all these coincidences someone's invited you to church someone ran into you at at the place buying pants and you think oh it's coincidence no this is God's hand at work in your life this is providence and he's saying I'm going to provide for you and he ultimately provided for you by sending Jesus upon a cross so, our deepest condition, our human condition, our deepest need of wanting to be known, needing to be known, and craving love and needing purpose can be answered and met through God's provision. He provided for you. And His work that's happening right now where you're at. I love this. I was talking to Deb um, the other day. And Deb, Deb was like, What? Oh. I was talking to Deb the other day, and we were talking about everybody that Deb's working with in ministry right now, and this spring forth, where Women in Crisis Ministry. She's like, Well, if you haven't really planned it, it's, it's not like we've kind of got a list and application and everybody plans. No, God just brings the people through this connection, through this person, through this prayer, through this. And it's just, it's just incredible to see God just constantly bringing the right people. That's not coincidence, people. That's God's hand at work. I always loved it when people were, 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 were telling me, like, oh, well, oh, it's, it's like, I ran to this person, I saw this sign. One of my favorite stories, I can't remember who it was, who comes to Waypoint, they said they were looking for a church when they first moved the area and saw a Waypoint church sticker, and they followed them into the church that was close to their house. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll go there. And I'm like, sweet, we don't have that many stickers out there compared to other churches. There's a lot of other churches with a lot more stickers, but for some reason, that person saw that sticker pulling in at that moment. Guys, are these accidents? You can choose. This is up to you. You can choose to believe that the world is full of random chaos and die was cast and the die keeps on being cast and things keep on colliding and things are random and by chance. Or you can choose that God is sovereignly working for a purpose. But let me tell you, here's what happens when you choose one way or the other. When we choose one way, guys, when you choose that God's sovereignly working, then there's meaning in our suffering. There's meaning in what happens. Even if we don't understand, even if we don't see it, we can choose to believe that God, I don't see why you're doing this, but like a child who trusts his father, I'm gonna go with you on this one. Trusting that you have what's best in store. Can I tell you something, guys? When it comes to those two choices, I know what I crave. Because I've seen too much suffering and too much hurt and too much issues in this world to be like, it's just the way, it's just normal chance. I need to believe that there's a purpose. I need to know that there's more. Why is it so important that you know the concept of the providence of God? The answer is going to come from the next question, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 28. This is why it's important. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Matthew ten twenty nine says, Are not two sparrows sold for his scent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. I'll go back. Go back to that uh, slide. Kind of the language. You're like, What does that mean? We'll read it again. So that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love. Patience in adversity. Guys, when we believe in the providence of God, that then when the hard things happen, when the hard times come, when it's adverse circumstances, when we're going through suffering, that we can say, we will patiently suffer through because God is doing something through this. There's purpose in it, there's meaning to it. Guys, if there was no purpose to my suffering, then I don't want to suffer anymore. It stinks. But for every one of you guys who are suffering from physical hurt, physical ailment, from medical conditions, for every one of you who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, for my brothers and sisters who are in, in China and all these other countries who are being arrested right now, there is purpose in their suffering. There's shaping of our character. There's, there's things that are being accomplished that we can't even comprehend, cannot foresee. So it gives us patience in our suffering. I don't know how else I can endure if I didn't believe that it was worth something more. Do you see, when we believe in the providence, we believe in God's hand, when we choose to believe in the providence of God, then we can face suffering and patience. We can face adversity with patience. A belief and trust in the providence of God lets you face this time saying it isn't without purpose and God is doing something. But then two, it allows you to be thankful in your prosperity. It's so easy oftentimes to acknowledge God when things are bad, right? Like things are going rough. You're like, God, why are you doing this? God, I need you. But when things are going great, you're like, do do Right? Or things are going good, aren't you just more like, oh, I did it. Right? When things are bad, you're like, God, help me. But when things are going good. I must have been really smart. Right? I must have made really good decisions. Was it chance? Good luck? Your own hard work? Or maybe it was God's providence in your life. Do you hear that? God, we're so good at giving ourselves credit when things are good, aren't we? And when things are bad, oh, it's God's fault. Right? That's what we do. Things are going wrong. Oh, God, why are you making me suffer? When things are great, I'm like, look how good I did. I made the right financial decisions. I studied hard. I did great. Guys, it's all God's providence. And that makes you understand when things are great, when prosperity, you think, oh, God, by grace alone, only by your grace am I here. Thank you, God. Guys, guys, I was telling Gina something. I was like, this is the beautiful thing about providence is that if whether things are great and things are prosperous or things are suffering, can you be the same? Right? Can you be the same? Because that's when you truly understand providence of God is whether it's good or whether it's bad. It's still what God's will for you is and His will is the best place to be in and He trusted and He's sovereign. And He's king. Like, can we be the same in both? Yes. Do you hear that? A good understanding of the providence of God, the theology of providence teaches us that in prosperity, we can be thankful because it's all from him and it's all for him. And then three, for what is future, have good confidence. Man, can I tell you guys, there's so many people who struggle with anxiety all the time. Do you live in fear of the future? Are you anxious about tomorrow? I love what it says, that there aren't, are not two sparrows, sparrows sold for a cent yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Literally saying, hey, birds are worth like nothing. <laughs> right? Two of them are sold for a cent; they're worth nothing. But even them, even the birds, not one will fall to the ground if not apart from your father's will. Do you hear me? What is Providence saying about your future? What literally providence is saying about your future is that you're worth a million, bazillion times more than a sparrow and nothing's going to happen to you apart from the Father's will for you. Do you get that? Providence lets you look at the future, be like Esther and Mordecai and say, I'll take whatever comes my way. I can face the future with confidence because whether things are adverse or things are are, are, um, adverse or prosperous, it's the same. You believe in the will of God and the move of God. Guys, please hear me very well. I know anxiety is so real. And it's tough, and sometimes debilitating. But I think one of the first ways we combat anxiety in our lives is learning to trust God more. We learn to say, I am not in control, God. Providence teaches that you are, and these are not just coincidences. You're moving, you are working, and you are changing things in this world. Will you choose to trust in providence? There's a song, that I don't know why, this whole time I was writing this sermon, this whole week, this song was in my head. And it's a song that goes, he's got the whole world in his hands, he's got the whole world. I love that song. Right? Because it's the same idea of the sparrows. He's got the sparrows in his hand, and the sparrow won't fall unless he wants it to fall. He literally holds the universe in his hand. Your life, your future, our world. He holds it all-powerful in his hands. He controls. He's sovereign. I'm not. He's God. I'm not. I'm just going to go, That's our sin, isn't it? That we want to be God. And anxiety comes up because we want so much to say, "No, nah, I don't want to trust in providence, God. I want to trust in me." But then you're so anxious because you realize, "Ooh, me is scary. Uh, you can't trust yourself too much in this world, right? Or me can only control so much." Trusting to choose in providence is saying, "I see it in Esther. The author is trying to communicate this to us. Even when I can't see Him, God is moving behind the scenes." Do you believe? Will you choose to trust? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.